Well, welcome back to Getting Heaven in the People. I'm Dave Ripper from Crossway Christian Church here in Southern New Hampshire. And we recently finished a 40-episode series on deepening your spiritual life. And we have been overwhelmed by the ways we have been hearing about how the podcast has impacted your life with God and the desire so many of you have to get heaven more and more into your life and your family and our church or your church, wherever you are listening from. And along with this, many of you asked that we keep this podcast going. And we sense the Lord leading us in the same direction. So that's what we plan to do. We're still discerning what some of the next steps exactly will be. But as we discern, I'd love to share a few episodes with you that feature some of my favorite conversations and moments that I have had with friends at Crossway Christian Church. And so today's episode, number 41, comes from a talk my mentor and friend, pastor and best-selling author, Gordon McDonald, delivered at Crossway Christian Church in the summer of 2019. This message, entitled Going Deep, is Gordon's perspective as an 80-year-old follower of Christ about how we grow spiritually over the decades. It's a 13-point talk. Yes, that's right. A 13-point talk on the key questions we should ask if we want to go deep, or as we've been calling it here on this podcast, getting heaven into our lives more and more. Following this In our next episode, I'll share the conversation I had with Gordon after he delivered this powerful, reflective message. So make sure to get something out to write with and enjoy and be blessed by Pastor Gordon McDonald's talk, Going Deep. Kale and I are so glad to be here today at Crossways Church with all of you. We're thankful for the invitation that your pastor extended uh, for this morning. We've enjoyed getting to know him and Aaron very much over the last period of time. Um, Anybody who moves to New Hampshire has got to have something good going for them. But but it's a very, very pleasant thing to be here. Now, uh, Dave gave me my choice, and this table is here. I can stand and preach, or I can sit and talk. And uh, so I I think, for a few minutes anyway, I'm going to sit and talk and See what it feels like. Because uh, if I were truthful to myself, what I'm going to do for the next minutes is probably not preach a sermon, uh, but to lay out some ideas which I hope will just kind of fester in the heart of each of you, regardless of your age or your position as a biblical Christian. Or, uh, but things that maybe after this morning is over, you can take home and talk about over a lunch table, over a sandwich, or into the evening. Um, things that help us to understand the implications of what it means to deepen as a Christian. As long as I can remember in my own life, I have been a runner. When I was a kid on the block, I was the fastest of all the boys who ran. The girls didn't run in those days. But we ran, and I was the best runner. I couldn't hit a baseball very well. I wasn't too good at football, but when it came to running especially if someone was coming after you. I was pretty good at that. And then when I became an adult, I continued the running process over the years, uh, more or less jogging than anything else. And in these last two, three years after some knee surgery, more walking than running. But perhaps the uh, time in my life where I enjoyed running the most 
was in my high school and collegiate days when I was able to run track and cross country, which some of you have done over the years and know probably as much if not more about it than, than I do. That running experience really marked my life. And even to this day, in many, many ways, the word picture or the metaphor that comes to me when I'm thinking deeply about this issue of that is, how does this apply to things I learned when I was a competitive runner? The track coach at my boarding school saw in the first days that I was there that I might have something to add to the track team, and so he began to work with me. And one night he called me down to his home, and after he and his wife had served me a good dinner, when you're a boarding school student, you always go to somebody's house for dinner. Uh, he took a notebook off the shelf, and I could see very, very quickly that on the front cover of that notebook was my name in big black letters. He turned to the back page, and I saw there these words, June 1957. Well, that was about 45 months out in front of the date that we were sitting at the table that night. And he began to show me on that piece of page, 45 months from now, uh, races and time trials that I would run and times that he thought I could reach at that point. I was amazed. I was scared to death. I said to him, Coach, there's no way, there is no way I will ever reach those times 45 months from now. He said, watch, I think I can show you how it will happen. And he turned the pages back, one after the other, from the back of the book to the front of the book. And what I quickly began to see is that at every month of those 45 months, it was like a stair step. He was scheduling experiences for me where my times would increase as my conditioning and my body improved, and he was going to take me from here to there. Now, if you think about that for just a moment, that is a marvelous picture of a lifelong experience of walking with Jesus. One starts here, one perhaps can end up here. I'd like to read to you from the Bible, and very quickly you will recognize this passage if you have any experience in Bible reading, and you'll quickly see, given my last remarks, why I would pick this text. It comes from the book of Hebrews chapter 12. And here are the words of the unknown writer. Some people think it was St. Paul. Others would guess at other writers, but I don't care. This person, whoever it was, when he wrote, he was a runner. And he knew how to use the picture of running to get across what he wanted us to understand. By the way, before I read this, let me say just as another background, that the people to whom this paragraph was written were largely discouraged about their Christian life. They weren't going anywhere in their deepening process. They weren't growing. And many of them were quitting the faith. It was a tough time. Lots of persecution, lots of pain, lots of fear. And these people were really scared. Now you can appreciate these words as I read them from a modern translation. Strip down. Start running. And never quit. No extra spiritual I forgot, I should have this on the... It's there? Okay, good, you can read with me, I'll forget that. Let me start again, because it's so good. Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat. No parasitic sins. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. 
who both began and finished this race that we're in. Study how he did it. Because he never, never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor. Right alongside God. And when you find yourself flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. The long litany of hostility that he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Almost every time I read that paragraph, I just come aglow all over. This person knows what he's talking about when he writes as an athlete. He knows how every runner, man or woman, goes to the starting line. And one of the last things we check before we run the 100 meters or the quarter mile or the 10,000, whatever it would be the length, we always check to say, I'm not carrying any extra baggage that I should be car- shouldn't be carrying in this race, should I? And I remember those days when these words came alive to me, not only as an athlete, but sooner or later they started coming to me as a Christian has a picture of what it means in a lifelong perspective to run the race that is set before us. Listen to these words again. Strip down. Start running. Never quit. Keep your eyes on Jesus. On the cross-country team that I ran for, there was a wonderful runner. He was two or three years ahead of me. But he was a champion runner in every type. And our coach would say, when you start off the line and you begin to run, always keep your eyes, and he would name this man. Then one day, when we were running a championship race at Van Cortlandt Park in New York City, I came around the corner of the course, and there ahead of me was our chief man. And he was walking. He was walking. You don't walk in a cross-country race of five or six miles. You keep on going. Something had happened and his hands were on his hips like this, which is a sign of exhaustion or a sign that something has happened in the mind that makes you just want to quit and stop going forward. I remember how shaken I was that the person against whom I was to measure my running was walking. One of the points that this writer is making in this particular paragraph is we follow one who never quits. We follow one who never gives in. We follow one who knows where the course is going and where the finish line is. And he's there himself at this point. And he wants to draw us along by the end of life to be at the same point of the finish line that he's at. One of the things I've learned over the years about Christian life is that it's a progressive experience. Every seven or eight years, something happens, or an issue rises, or a challenge comes, and little bit by little, I discover that my Christian life has gone up another step in my journey from here, as the coach once said, to my journey here. Very, very important to know where those points are coming along. And one of the ways I began to figure it out, as I look back across my 80 years of life, is to formulate it in the the position of questions. Because there's always been a question out there that I had to wrestle with the answer. 
a question that defined the kind of man I would become and the kind of things that I would want to make happen. I'm going to do something for the next few minutes that you must never tell anybody you saw me do. I'm about to give you a 13-point talk. You'd flunk out of seminary if they found out that you did that. But the value of these 13 points, and they'll come very, very quickly, is if you would write them down. They may formulate a process of thinking and talking with people who are special to you. 13 different levels in which we are making this journey from here to there. The first question comes when someone is very young. I notice that there's some young men and women in the room today who are teenagers. This might be the question that some of you are wrestling with right now when you think about life and uh, you're moving along from step to step. When I was a young person, a teenager, the operating question that was plaguing me is, who am I becoming? In our first years, we are the children of our parents. And they pretty much control life and explain it to us. But there comes a very interesting moment or moments in the teenage years when we begin to move away from the total control and influence of those parents. We start to listen to our teachers, to our coaches. We start listening to people in our peer group. And together we start allowing those voices to enter into our minds, our emotions, our soul, however you want to use those words. And in those periods of years, we begin to change from this to this. Who am I becoming? If you want a biblical reference for that, I find one that's a favorite line of mine in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, verse 52, in which it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and in maturity, in favor with God and people. You see what's happening here? Jesus himself, as a teenager, is becoming somebody new. He's moving away from the influence of his father and mother, Joseph and Mary. And he's moving into the influence of God the Father and the world in which he's traveling and doing his thing. So young people are wrestling with the question, who am I becoming and how is that working and how is that a pleasure to God? The question that might follow, and you could put it at almost any place in those early years, and each one of us probably has come to it, is around whom have I organized my life? Who is, who is the one that I choose to follow? We're here this morning because most of us in this room have or are in the process of choosing to follow Jesus Christ. We are trying, as the Bible teaches, to become more and more like him each day. We're asking the sub-question, how can I move closer to the cross and draw from it the power which not only just rescues and saves, but the power that helps me to become a woman or a man of God, as I am destined to be as a Christian person. The third question might be, who are the people who comprise my personal communities? This is a question that people in their 20s start asking very carefully. It might be a question that's answered, first of all, by who it is we choose to fall in love with and to marry. I met Gail when we were both 23 years of age. A mutual friend of ours said to me one night, I've met a woman that I think would make you a wonderful wife. 
The next morning I met her and four months later we were married. It saves money on a long courtship. <laughs> Gail became the core of my community. And then as the years went by, I became a pastor. And our congregation became another level or layer of community. Then along the line, you make some very close personal friendships. Men and women who understand your heart and you understand theirs. And this becomes a group of communities through whom God may speak. I've often thought to myself, a lot of the things I've heard God speak into my life over the years came through scripture, but sometimes I think even more came from my communities. The people around me who on occasion affirmed me when I was growing, people around me who rebuked me, and corrected me, and if I hadn't had them at the right time and the right place, I don't know where life would be these many, many years later. A fourth question that comes in the early years of life is, how am I gifted? And what have I been called to accomplish? Christians believe in the drama of heaven's call upon the life of each person. The scriptures teach us that God molds us and makes us each one. He gives us capacities that may be different from the person next to us on either side. And then he calls us to special opportunities. Some calls are calls to something that's out there in front that everybody can see a person doing things, like the men and women who have been up here leading us in worship in the last few minutes. Sometimes calls are to functions which are quiet behind the scenes, something that nobody sees except that someday God will reward those who served in secret. How am I gifted? Everyone really needs to wrestle with a question like that. And the beyond question, how am I called? Don't go through life without knowing how God has called you to act and to play a role in his kingdom in this generation. The next question that comes is, how can I live up to the expectations that people have for me? This is a question that a lot of us deal with more or less in our 30s. It's a question that comes really very, very confrontative to us as the obligations of life begin to grow. If I'm married, now we need to have a place to live, an apartment, a condo, a home. If I have a family, I've got to pay insurance payments. I've got to have a job that's steady and consistent. I've got to be able to walk through life living with the pressures that come upon my shoulders every day of the week. A pastor has more than one person come on a regular basis for visits and will say, I don't know how I can keep up with all the demands that are being made upon me. I'm exhausted. I'm going to have to cut back. And, and, and so we wrestle with this question, how do I live up with the pressures that life presents to me? When people come along in their midlife, in their early 40s, another question presents itself. It's a very personal question, and some of you perhaps are asking it of yourself even these days. At life's midpoint, how do I feel about the person I've become? Am I satisfied? Or am I disappointed? I remember the first time that question became real to me. A man came to visit one day in the office that I was occupying in those days. and 
he sat down and and I, I was pretty I was about 15 years young, younger than him but I can always remember this picture when suddenly without any warning he put his face in his hands like this and began to weep and I said to myself what do I say now and I asked a question like what's behind those tears and he said to me I'm so disappointed I'm so disappointed. Well, what are you disappointed in? I'm disappointed in my marriage. It's nothing like what I expected it to be. I'm so disappointed in my job, I thought I would be more satisfied with it in these days. I'm disappointed in the way I've raised my children, and now it's too late. I'm disappointed with my lack of character and my faith. I thought by this time in life, most of the temptations and most of the struggles would go away. But they haven't. They've been replaced by new ones. I'm so disappointed. Some of you may be here today, and if you were honest with yourself, you're a tad disappointed too. And it's time to bring those disappointments to Jesus and ask for the privilege of some revivals that come on the soul at midlife, to change direction, to confront regularly and carefully some of those things which aren't working out very well. There's another question that comes along about that time. How can I rearrange my life? How can I rearrange my life and adjust to second half realities? Those of us who are moving through the second half of life, and I'm well past that point now, but we know what it's like when one day you discover your home is an empty nest. These kids that you gave your best to for 20, 22 years, they're gone. They're on to other things. The house is empty. It's a time to take a hard look at the question of how is my marriage changing? My husband or my wife wants to do different things. They want to go out and find a new career. What does this do to my security and to my stability in life? It's a time when sometimes our parents begin to change on us. They've been our parents for 50 years and now they're slowly becoming our children. They look to us for wisdom and for help. It's a time when my friends begin to change. Some people move away. Other people go to Florida. It can be a very different time. And it leaves way to the next question that comes as I move into my 60s. How long can I keep doing the work that has defined me? Talk to a lot of older people. If you're young and you have a mother or father in their 60s, ask them how they feel about their work. Ask them what it means to them. Ask them what role it plays in their own identity. You may be surprised at some of the words that you hear in response. Then the ninth question becomes, how generous a person am I? Am I really thinking about giving back? Do the people around me see me as someone who's willing to sacrifice and to do things that will help me in a more difficult moment? How have I influenced a younger generation? Those of us over the age of 50, it's time for us to be looking at the up-and-coming generation 
that's beginning to show itself in its early 20s. What are we doing for the younger people of our congregation? How much of our wisdom, our experience, will we learn to share with them? And then you get to the decade that Gail and I are in, or are just passing out of. How do I have the stamina to persevere in times of weakness, in times of suffering, in times of loss? Some of you who are younger will find this to be a little bit of a funny thing to say or a gloomy thing to say, but please understand me, you're headed in this direction. When I tell you that one of the first things I turn to in the New York Times every morning is the obituary column. You start thinking a lot about who's dying around you. Gail and I hear almost every week of someone we have known who's gone to be with the Lord. Death is very much molded in to our way of life. It spawns questions like, how will I die? Or sometimes Gail and I will look at each other and quietly say, is this the last normal day we conceivably could have together? Because the statistics suggest that one or both of us will be gone in the next five years. For many, many years, persons, people don't think about something like that. And then one day it hits you like a bowling ball coming down an aisle. This is the most important thing in my life I can't avoid. One day, it all ends. How will that happen? And if it's something that happens to the one I love, what will that do in changing my life? And if I'm the one, what will it do to change hers? This is a time of weakness when our bodies begin to change, when they no longer respond to the orders we give them. It's a time when we begin to suffer sometimes. We've gone through a lot of life and we've not thought about so other people suffer. We don't. And then one day we recognize almost everyone goes through a suffering moment. Jesus warned us straight ahead that there would come times in life where suffering would be a reality for each of us and we must prepare for those suffering times. What will the Word say to us in a suffering moment? Who are the people around us that will come alongside and offer us comfort and cheer in suffering moments? Every biblical person has to confront the issue of weakness and suffering straight on. A couple more questions if you are not bothered by now. What do I want my family and my friends to most remember about me after I'm gone? Some might call that the legacy question. As we get older, we spend a little bit of our time managing our estate, our money. We start asking the question, do I have enough to pay my bills? What will I pass on perhaps to another generation? But there's more important legacies than just financial. There are spiritual legacies to handle on. What do you want your great-grandchildren to remember as they hear stories about you as a woman or a man? What do you want them to have seen in you as a person who chose to run with your eyes upon Jesus? It's 
really an important question. And I think about it all the time. A last question. What do I believe lies beyond my physical death? When I was a young man as a pastor, I preached every once in a while about heaven. But may I confess to you that it was more or less a theological or an academic subject to me. I was convinced that one day they would find a cure for death and we would just keep going on and on. Not really, but it felt like that. And now I'm in a point in my life where I ask the question with regularity, what's heaven going to be like? I'm not really enamored by streets of gold. You'd have to polish those all the time, I think. <laughs> I really don't want a mansion. We decided a long time ago we needed to downsize. I'm not sure I want a city that has high walls. I've heard enough about walls lately. So what's heaven going to be like? What does the Spirit of God say to me about this blessed hope out there someday that's going to go on forever and ever? We need to talk more about heaven and who's going to be there and what we're going to do and what it's going to mean and what will be left behind. Now, I just gave you 13 questions, each one worth a full day's discussion, each one worth searching for those who've written about them, those who have spoken and taught about them. But it's around those questions that you and I deepen. Ignore those questions, and you have a shallow life ahead of you. Embrace those questions. Brood upon them. Speak of them in prayer to God. Ask how those questions show themselves in the life of our Lord Jesus and beyond him, the people who followed him and testified to him all the way through the scripture. Those are the questions that create the structure of the deepened Christian life. They cannot, they should not be ignored. Some time ago, there was a man by the name of E. Stanley Jones, who was a missionary evangelist in India for 55 years. He lived in our lifetime, and uh, a lot of us never got to meet him, but we read all the books he read, wrote, and we listened to his tapes because he had a magnificent love for Jesus that carried him all the way through the years. He had a stroke at the age of 85 and died not far from here in the city of Boston in a rehab home, but almost all of his life had been in India. In his last book, he wrote this paragraph, which I have found over the years electrifying, especially as I've grown older. Here's E. Stanley Jones. There are scars on my faith, but underneath those scars there are no doubts. Christ has me with the consent of all my being and with the cooperation of all my life. The song I sing is a life song, not the temporary exuberance of youth that often fades when middle and old age sets in with its disillusionment and its cynicism. Now get this last line. Let it just sweep over your soul. No, I'm 83. 
And I'm more excited today about being a Christian than I was at 18 when I first put my foot upon the way. That's what a deepened Christian looks like. This is not someone who just was excitable in their 20s and their 30s. But this is a man, could have been a woman, at the age of 83, who is more committed to Jesus than ever before. Why? Because they have followed the questions. And they have started here. And they have come to the point where they're here. You can do that too. Let's say a prayer together. Father, thank you for questions that make us curious and cause us to look deeper than ever before. I pray for my friends who sit in this room. We don't know each other very well, but we do have this much in common. We're here to worship, and we're here to learn in one way or the other how Jesus can take us on that race and bring us to the finish line. I pray for men and women in this church this morning who are struggling with one or more of these questions. Lead them, I pray, to insightful answers. Help them to deepen, to grow, to run the race. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks so much for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, we'd love to hear from you or we'd encourage you to share it uh, with someone else. You can subscribe so you never miss one of our upcoming episodes and tune back soon for episode 42 as I share my conversation with Pastor Gordon McDonald. May the Lord be with you and we look forward to seeing you next time.